So last week we talked about John 4, and Jesus went to a town. What town did he go to? Anyone remember? There was a woman at the well, and this well was in Samaria. Samaria. If you live in Samaria, you're a Samaritan. Okay. Um, So they're in Samaria, and Jews like, dislike Samaritans. Dislike them. Dislike them. They called them half-breeds, and they would even walk around their town. Y'all remember that? But Jesus says, I have to go through Samaria. Why? Because he needed to talk to a lady, right? And this lady, uh, I'm going to recap a little bit of the story because I want to focus on the section where Jesus highlights worship because I want us to understand what he really is saying there. I think there's kind of like a, there's some gold in that sentence, and I want us to break that apart. So this lady comes to the well, and she came at a time later than everyone else did. She came around noon to draw water, and everyone else would have come at like 7 a.m. And so she's an outcast among the people who are outcasts. And so, but Jesus decides that he has to speak with her. He needs to meet with her. Um, And when he does that, he has this conversation with her about living water. You'll remember that? And she was very literal. And she's like, and he said, look, I have water to drink that you don't know of. And she was like, where do you get this water? You don't have anything to draw water out of the well. And he was saying that the water that I have comes from the Father. And I have living water. And he calls it eternal life. In other words, he essentially shares that there's something that can satisfy her soul. Um, that will never cause her to thirst again. And she said, where can I find this living water? And he says that he actually turns the conversation, begins talking about her relationships and how she has living, she's living with someone that's not her husband, how she's had four husbands. Y'all remember this part? You remember this story? Right, that's right. So, and then in the middle of that, she kind of like very smoothly navigates the conversation away from her love life, which she wasn't really proud about. And she brings up worship. Yet, Jesus kind of follows the conversation with her. In the middle of this conversation, in the middle of him being intentional and caring about someone that's an outcast of outcasts, that's, the, that's really key here. Jesus is caring about someone who's an outcast of outcasts. He gives a little gold about what it means to worship the Lord. Okay? Are we tracking everyone? Does everyone, everyone remember? So we're in John 4. We have Samaria. So in a place that Jews aren't supposed to be. He's talking about satisfaction. What does it mean to be filled by God? to be thirst, and he um, gives this nugget of wisdom. So I want us to start in John chapter 4, and um, I want us to start in verse 19, okay? So this is right after Jesus says, um, go call your husband, and she says, I, I don't have a husband. She says, you're right, you have four husbands, the person living with is your husband now. Kind of just later business out on the table. And in verse 19, this is what Jesus says. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. So let's look at really what's happening here. They begin to have this conversation over territories. 
Now, this is crucial because in order for us to understand uh, what it means when he says God is, God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth, um, we have to understand what it doesn't mean, if that makes sense. And so this idea of spirit and truth, if we don't, if we just, we can get really confused about it. Okay, if worship is spirit and worship is truth, and how do I worship in spirit and truth? Because that seems to be the thing um, that is necessary for true and genuine worship. So the question arises, how do I worship in spirit and truth? What does it look like to worship in spirit? What does it look like to worship in truth, the spirit and truth? So this question keeps coming up over and over again. But before that, it says, the hour is coming, this is verse 21, when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. I want you to think about customs at that time. So you have uh, the Samaritans who are Gentile people, and you have the Jews. Now the Jews went to a place of worship, right? They had a temple um, where they worshiped, and it was a geographical location. And so what this lady is saying, she's saying like, okay, some people worship over here, some people worship over here, and is thinking about locations. She's thinking about customs. She's thinking about cultures. Think of it just like how some people worship at this church, and some people worship at this church, and some people like make these hikes on these pilgrims, and they go worship over here, and different customs worship different places. And she's saying, so like, what's the deal with that? Can you tell me what's going on? And he says, look, the hour is coming. Look, it's actually at hand. It's a very Jesus phrase to say. But here's the deal. It doesn't matter where your location is, but what matters is if you're worshiping God in spirit and truth. Is this making sense? So that your worship isn't actually location-based. Now, we don't think location-based because when we walk, we have the Holy Spirit, and we can worship God wherever we're going, right? Down North Street, like in Panama. Like, it doesn't matter where we're at. We can worship the Lord anywhere. Yet, for them, they thought very geographical. And they thought, I worship God at the temple, okay? It's like doing school at SFA, right? Studying in the library. That's the thing that you do at that location. And so the idea of worship was 100% location-bound. So when God shows up and it says that the Father is looking for people to worship in spirit and truth, and that the God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. Well, he says that he kind of rewrites their frame of what they think the word worship means. It's that to worship is actually not location-bound, but has these two parameters, spirit and truth. So the question then poses... When God says worship in spirit and truth, what does he mean? Have you all ever thought that? Have you all ever like looked at that question and says, okay, this is how we're supposed to worship. How do I worship in spirit and truth? Do I just like, you know, you could take that so many different directions. We're going to look at answering that today. Have you all ever thought, what does the word worship mean? Have you all ever just sat there and thought about that? Like, what's the word worship mean? We think about worship and a lot of us think about a couple things. We think about singing, right? Think about Blake Russell Band in there leading us. Um, maybe a little bit of Drew Middlebrook. And then, or we'll think about worship and, you know, like, it's just my lifestyle. I live a life of worship. Or you think of, they, they would think of worship geographically. They would think of worship as sacrifices. Um, there's all kinds of different ideas of what worship means. So the word worship in the New Testament, I'm going to teach you guys a little Greek. I'm not a Greek guy, but I'll tell you something. Uh, it's proskuneo. Now, proskuneo literally means to lay down flat. In other words, to prostrate yourself, just to completely lay down in, as of submission of something. So 
it has to do with recognizing greatness. All right, so I want to tell you guys a funny story. So when I was in middle school, I thought I was going to be a professional basketball player. That's right. I thought so. And I had this dream. I had no hops, but I had this dream. And I went to this small little Christian prep school. Anybody go to like a small private Christian school? All right. What's up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so like the classes are really small there. Like my class had like 18 people and we were the large class. And so I did that through eighth grade year. Well, during that time, I got pretty good in like the Christian private school, like, I don't know, circle. Like I was, I was the guy like on our team. Uh, and as an eighth grader, I got the chance to play in tournaments and I thought I was the stuff. And um, fun fact, I haven't grown since I was 13. So uh, I'm serious. And so I was a dominant force and, and I was just, yeah, but. And so I thought I was great. I thought I was putting in all the effort. I was going to be the next Larry Bird. And then I switched from a private school to a public school in ninth grade. Now, but my public school wasn't just a public school. Uh, my public school actually went to state in basketball my freshman year. And so I got on the court thinking, like, I'm the stuff. Uh, I've been killing these scrawny little homeschoolers, and I'm, I'm fixing to dominate. And I got on the court, and uh, it was as if my eyes were open <laughs> that there was another level <laughs> that I was not at. <laughs> and I saw people leaping and gliding through the air and dunking, and I was like, well, I cannot do that. And, uh, and although I, this is not the point of the story, but I still blame the fact that I wasn't on the starting five with my wisdom teeth coming out. I had wisdom teeth surgery, whatever that's called, um, like the week of tryouts. And so... I think if coach, coach just would have seen me uh, before my wisdom teeth were out, I would have been a, a dominant player. But when I lost the wisdom teeth, I just lost the, the feel. I don't know. So, uh, all right, that's besides the story. Now we're just making fun of John. But what happened was, I'll never forget, there was a guy named Chris Hall. There's another guy named Jonathan Martin. And there was another dude. I forgot his name. Josh. His name was Josh. And that boy could fly. And he would just take off. And bang, just like dunk the ball. I was like, man. And uh, I'm like barely touching backboard. Uh, and so, anyways, long story short, I was in that moment very much aware that I am not on the same level as these guys. Very much aware. And when you hear stories about professional athletes, Kendall and I were talking about this past week. He had the opportunity to uh, play against a couple of guys that went pro. And he says play in a very loose term because he was on the court while they were on the court. Um, but he says when they're on the court, it's 100% obvious, oh, that person is better than everyone else. <laughs> they are more athletic. Like he said he described one time he went in for a layup, and this guy just blocked it. And it was, it was as if the entire crowd went, oh, we're never scoring again. And, like, <laughs> they were aware. So I say that to say, like, when professional athletes come to the high school scene, it's like they dominate everyone. And then you have people who are like the really good professional athletes who dominate the professional athletes. You understand what I'm saying? So there's hierarchies, and there are moments in life when you realize you're much better than I am, right? And the idea of proskuneo, getting back to the Greek, is this idea of 100% recognizing that that's better than me. 
Like that's greater than I am. I am absolutely not in the same category, right? If you put LeBron and I on the same court, the only thing we'll share is the last name because we <laughs> are not on the same playing field. I mean, I mean that, like, when you recognize that, if, just think about that. And so the idea of proskuneu is that you view yourself so low, because, not because you think you're terrible, right? What did I think about myself going into freshman year? I thought I was a stuff, right? But here's what happened. I recognized there was something greater. This idea of worship has that in mind, that we actually have to recognize God's greatness, first of all. And that's at the root of worship. So the idea is to lay down, to kneel as of submission. Why would you lay down? It's 100% lowering yourself to the greatest point of humility in order to exalt something that's greater than you. So at the core of worship is that God is greater than you. Now, there's a lot to that. Um, But before we kind of jump into that, I want us to go back to this idea that God is spirit and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. All right, we have that phrase. God is spirit. We must worship in spirit and truth. God is spirit. Worship in spirit and truth. So we're going to do body, soul, spirit just because I think this will help you guys. All right. So, if God is spirit, those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. Okay, y'all know the rules. Don't make fun of any of my writing. All right. Okay. Y'all know this? All right. Body, what is this? Someone tell me what this is. This is your physical. It's like your hands, your movements. Yeah, physical. All right. Okay. And then what is in your soul? Those are three things. Oh, come on, Anthony. Anthony's on the board. All right. Awesome. Okay. Now, God is spirit. So God dwells, right, in the spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. Now, if God is spirit, then he dwells within our spirit. And we're going to take a look at this in some verses, and I want to kind of show you where I get this idea. This isn't just some cool drawing we came up with. So if God is spirit, then it means he dwells within our spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. All right. So I want you to think about this. This Holy Spirit in this position, sometimes I talk about this. Y'all can't read this because my handwriting is so small. I understand. That says authority rather poorly, but that says authority. When the Holy Spirit has authority, the chain of command is that as the Holy Spirit speaks to us, we receive it. And then, y'all know this, as the abide and transform, right? As we abide with God, he transforms us. So as the Holy Spirit speaks, he transforms our mind, our will, and our emotions, and therefore our actions, right? And it goes out like this, all right? So... As the Holy Spirit speaks, it transforms our mind, will, and emotions, and our actions, our output is changed as a result of the Holy Spirit having authority. I'm going a little fast about this, but let me stop and make a point. What do we often do when we come against problems? 
How do we, how do we address them? We 100% address them down here in our actions. We change actions. And you know why that's a terrible way to do it? And, and let's be real, sometimes I do it. I'm not judging you right here. But it's a terrible way to do it because we're, this is an out- output of something. This comes as a result of things. When we focus on behavior changes, we've not addressed our authority position. We've not addressed how is our mind, will, and emotions being, being transformed. We just say transform it, if that makes sense. I'm going to think differently. I'm going to live differently. The problem with that is that it's all external. All right. Now, this is this system, right? This is the one that I would highly recommend. <laughs> but there's another one. There's another one. And this is the one that we live in before salvation. And this is, I'm just going to put authority here, okay? And what happens when self is in charge? When we're calling the shots, that means our spirit is essentially dead. There's no life within our spirit, and our self is in charge. Because our self's in charge, our self sends a command, and it gets executed by our mind, our will, and our emotions that aren't being transformed by the Lord. And our actions are actually actions that reflect self. So in this model, we actually are worshiping ourself because we're giving ourself the highest authority. In this model, we worship ourselves because we're giving self the highest authority. Whereas in the other model, we it's a more of a worship of the Lord because we're putting the Holy Spirit in the highest position possible. Does that make sense? So when this is the case, there's a cutoff from worship. What we're going to notice is that man was meant to worship God. The greatest call in a man's life, in a woman's life, is to worship God. When God creates the Garden of Eden, he says, to, he gives them a job of taking care of it. How are they supposed to take care of it? Well, in a way that reflected the goodness of the creator. They had a job of worshiping God in their task. They had a job of recognizing God's superiority and still living out their day-to-day tasks in a way that honored that. So we have to somehow reconcile this idea that If God is spirit, that means he dwells within us. And those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. I want to show you some verses here in a second, but I want to get to the point here. God is spirit. So God's spirit lives within us. That's the Holy Spirit. So true worship can only be done from spirit. What that means is is that It's the Holy Spirit that promotes worship in our inward man. You do not create and manufacture worship. Worship occurs as a result of the Spirit of God within you doing His work. Okay? Here's why that's important. Because we're going to talk a lot about what worship isn't. And we often think that we can create moments of worship. Right? If we can just have the piano playing in the background and John says something inspirational, we have moments of worship. If the right band's playing, moments of worship. But our job is not to create moments of worship. That is the Holy Spirit's job that propels worship within us. 
I want to show you that in Scripture. Okay? Now, I want you all to turn to John 14. We're going to look at a few passages here, okay? It's impossible for us to create worship out of our own behavior. Let me show you this why on the graph. If worship is the task that is the end goal, John 14, if worship's the task, right, and we're trying to complete this task, and the goal is just doing this task, then where do we approach it? Down here in our actions. We try to create worship. But worship actually, if God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth, worship occurs first in the spirit of God, okay? When, when Jesus was having this conversation with the, lady, the woman at the well, what were they doing? They were doing actions to propel their worship. They were approaching it from here. And he was saying, look, worship needs to be done in the spirit, all right? So let's make this very simple. Is the action of singing worship? No, that's an action. Is the action of lifting my hands worship? No, that's an action. Okay? Let's say you want to get really spiritual. Uh, You want to kneel somewhere. That's a fantastic thing to do. I love it. But that right there is just an action. That does not create or produce worship. All right? Worship occurs first in the Spirit of God. So the Holy Spirit drawing us into worship is... Is crucial. Now, look in verse 15 of chapter 14. We're going to look at a bunch of verses that deal with the Holy Spirit and what role the Holy Spirit has in our lives. Now, this is enough to teach like a whole semester on. We're looking on what does God refer to the Spirit as and how does that work in worship, okay? Does that make sense? All right, John 14, start in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is Jesus speaking. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells within you and will be in you. What does this say? It says that the Spirit of God that that the world cannot receive lives within us because of our salvation, right? Because of our belief in Christ and what he's done on the cross and his resurrection, the Spirit of God lives within us. And he's referred to as the Spirit of truth. Does that sound familiar? God is Spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The Spirit of God lives within you. He dwells within you. Go down to verse 25 of chapter 14. And in verse 25, he says, These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. It says that the Holy Spirit teaches you all things. And he brings to remembrance all the things that God has said. It's actually the Holy Spirit's job to teach us how to worship. It's the Holy Spirit's job to teach us how to worship. Okay? Let's keep going. This is a lot. Chapter 15, look at verses 26 and 27. And but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. 
and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. We see that it's again called the spirit of truth. And what does this spirit of truth do? He bears witness about the Father. We don't use the word bears witness. He tells us about the Father. The spirit of God within us teaches us about worship. The spirit of God within us tells us about the Father. I want us to keep going. We're going to come back to these. Go to chapter 16, verses 13 uh, and 14. It says that when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has, has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Okay, verse 13, he refers to him as the spirit of truth. Y'all see that again? Okay, so the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And it says that he guides us into all truth. That's huge. I'm going to jump the gun a little bit. But if we're spirit and truth, so we worship in spirit and worship in truth, and the Holy Spirit's the one that guides us into truth. And the worship must be in congruence with the Holy Spirit of God. And furthermore, he says in verse 14, he will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Okay. So let's, let's slowly go back over that. Flip back to chapter 14, verse 17. That passage says that the spirit of truth, well, if we were to take all of these passages and summarize them, we see that the spirit of truth is from the Father. God's spirit was placed within Jesus, and God's spirit has been placed within us. As a result of that, we have the ability to be taught by the spirit how to worship God. And that last verse we just said, it said that the, the spirit is actually glorifying the Father. Glorifying is a really churchy word, and it means to make much of, okay? He's making much about the Father. He's worshiping the Father within us. Now, if the Spirit is the one that is making much of the Father, and the Holy Spirit is the one that indwells within us, then at the core of worship is our connection with the Holy Spirit. Okay? And not us creating a moment. Not us doing a physical activity. But what does the Holy Spirit do? He increases our knowledge of the Father. So at the core of worship is the knowledge of God. Think about that word proskuneo. It means to be made low. You're only putting yourself in that position when you recognize the greatness of something else. Now, what the Spirit does is that the Spirit teaches us the greatness of God. The Spirit teaches us the greatness of God. The Spirit's actually the one that begins to help our soul, help our mind, help our emotions, wrap, their, wrap our head around what, is it, what does God's greatness mean? Now, when I think about God's greatness, there's a lot of things that come to mind, right? He's clearly the greatest thing to ever be. 
But most of the time when we think about God's greatness, we think, I need to learn more about God. I need to gather more intellectual knowledge about God. And I actually need to change my vocabulary. Have you ever heard people talk about the greatness of God and they use like these like 75 cent words that like you've never heard of? And you're like, I don't know why, but that sounds very holy and I have no idea what that means. <laughs> um, now, I'm going to get back to that. But great, saying the greatness of God isn't learning a better vocabulary. Okay, let's just say that right now, all right? And having, understanding the greatness of God doesn't mean that you all of a sudden you read this big book by J.I. Packer or you read this other book by Timothy Keller and you're, look, you're reading all the big books about the greatness of God because you're going to learn the greatness of God. And so it's this intellectual pursuit of knowing the greatness of God. Because an intellectual pursuit of knowing the greatness of God is a mind exercise. But when being led by the Spirit of God, when the Spirit is actually the one that's teaching you the greatness of God, it's a different, 100% a different idea. Now, I want to make this very clear. Being led by the Spirit of God, you might read some books, okay? Here are some different perspectives on people as they teach you the greatness of God, and the Holy Spirit is going to teach you in that moment. But what it's not, it's not this academic uh, drive I have to learn this vocabulary. It's not this academic drive that I have to learn the, the qualities of God. And so, but what it actually is, is God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. I want you to think about a characteristic of God, so God and all of his greatness, that has become true in your life. And when I say true, I mean something that's actually become a reality and therefore shaped the way that you've understand and, and interacted with God and the world around you. What are the truths of God that have shaped your life? For me, for one of them, it's God's faithfulness. Okay? For, you might think of God's goodness. Uh, you might think of God as a creator. You might think of God as an all-knowing God. What are the truths about God that have essentially um, taken up residence inside your soul that have helped you shape and mold the world around you? What, what that is, is that's truth. And when we worship God, we worship God in spirit and truth. The difference between what we just said and learning facts, learning intellectual knowledge about God, is that that knowledge hasn't taken root in our life. But the truth of God, the ones that we've actually stored up in our heart and seen play out around us and we've attached ourselves to, that has. And so when we worship God, we worship from within, first of all, having recognized what he's done, having recognized the truth of who he is. It's not hard for us to understand the greatness of God when we can remember experiencing the greatness of God. And so when we worship, it's, it's worship from a response. Now, a great example of this is creation, right? I've never created anything, <laughs> and neither have you. <laughs> and God is the creator, right? So it's easy for us to understand his greatness on the creation scale because we've never created anything. Yet God has created and so it's easy for us to understand that God is a creator as we interact with creation. This is something that we've experienced and understand. And so the greatness of God via him being creator 
is actually what allows us to have that, under, that proskuneu, that worship of God and understanding his greatness. But here is my concern, and I've noticed this in my life. So this is a thing that I'm including myself in. When we think about the greatness of God, we actually don't think about the greatness of God much. We don't spend much time thinking about how wonderful God is. We don't think about God as an everlasting father. We think about that some relationally, but we think about him as a protector, as the sustainer of life, as the creator of life, as the king over all things, spiritual, uh, visible, and invisible. Like, do we think about in God's attributes of being all-powerful? Do we think about God's attributes of being all-knowing? And I can come and I can spit all of these attributes out. And it's not that we've just thought of them and said that's really cool. But have we let those truths be ingrained inside of us, take up residence in our hearts, so that actually changes the way that we think and interact? Because when that happens, worship comes forth from it. And so that's why I said it's not just memorizing facts, and it's not just reading Scripture, and it's not just reading books. It's actually letting truth of Scripture, it's letting the truth about who God is, take up place in your heart. And that's different. Do y'all see how that's different? So we, that's the place from where we worship. So when God is spirit, I want to show this to you again. When God's spirit, his job is to teach us how to worship. His job is to teach us the greatness of God. He guides us into all truth. That truth is the, the characteristics of God that have taken up residence in our heart. And so when we worship God, it occurs from the spirit and actually flows down. Okay, so worship starts here and comes out here. Now, it comes out here in many ways. We're going to get to that in a second. But worship starts here and comes out here. So the way that we think begins to worship God. Our desires, our emotions begin to worship God. Not because we changed our emotions. Not because we changed our thinking patterns. I'm just going to think more positive this year. New year, new me. We're actually thinking that I cannot create worship, and the thing that I've been made to do is worship God. And so I have to have a core understanding of the greatness of God, and that's the Holy Spirit's job. So we actually teach from a point of experience. We actually worship, I'm sorry, we worship from a point of experience. And that our mind, will, and emotions get changed as we worship. So when he says that God is spirit, we must worship in spirit and truth. That starts from the Holy Spirit. That starts from within and so we don't just start worshiping, right? Now we're going to get a little bit about how do we worship and what do we do. Um, but to live a life of worship is to live a life in congruence with the Holy Spirit. To live a life in congruence with the Holy Spirit. Worship is bowing down that something, to something that's greater than us. Now how do we do that, right? What does that actually look like? Go to Romans 12.1. Romans 12.1. Romans 12.1 is the uh, passage that everyone goes to when they're talking about worship because it makes it very simple. And Paul is making this incredible um, argument to the church at Rome about God and his sufficient grace and man's actual condition. And he kind of makes this point and he says in 12.1, he says, 
I appeal to you, therefore, he says, after everything I've said, brothers, by the mercies of God, he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says, present your bodies to God, and that's spiritual worship. So we often think, what is the action of worship? Okay, it, it occurs within the Holy Spirit. What is my action of worship? Do y'all remember earlier when we, I had self up here in, on the authority position? Well, in that moment, there's no presenting myself as a living sacrifice to God. And when I say living sacrifice, that's kind of a creepy word, but like giving up authority of myself, giving God control of my entire life. And he says, your worship is actually give God control of your entire life. And when I'm in authority, that whole worship thing's really hard to do because if worship comes from the Holy Spirit, what that means is that I can't be in control and like kind of worship God on the side. Worshiping God is at the center of who I am. And it pours out as a result. It pours out as a result of, of God. Holy Spirit teaching me how to worship, teaching me the greatness of God. And upon seeing the greatness of God, I live a life of worship. And it's easy in that moment to surrender myself when I see the greatness of God. Think about it. Like if you're struggling with control and like you want to be in control of your life, let's just say that, right? When you see that time and time and time again in the scripture, God's taking care of his people, it's easier to release it. When you see time and time again that God's taking care of your friend, that God's been faithful, that God's characteristics are more than just intellectual knowledge, when you begin to actually let them take root in your life, it's easy to hand over control to the Lord because it allows, your, allows us to begin a process of worship. See, when we actually have control of our life, it's hard to do worship at the same time. So the very first thing that we have to do is give ourselves to God. Now notice that action of giving ourselves to God still occurs up here. It's giving God authority. We try, remember, this, these actions of physical actions, I'm going to lift my hands, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to do this. This isn't worship. Singing, I'm going to sing. That's not worship. Singing isn't worship. And we, we've all heard this a ton of times, right? But singing isn't worship. Singing is an outpouring of what God's done in our heart. So why do we sing? Well, think about something that's very near and dear to you. You intellectually know about it in your mind. You know the truth. But then it's also, there's an emotional experience to it. Why do we sing? Because it allows our mind, will, and emotions to focus back on the greatness of God. And it allows us to sing those truths, remember those truths of who he is. Where it allows our heart to remember what God's done. Um, it allows us to think about the characteristics of God that we honestly have slipped our mind in a little bit and allows us to bring us back to remember those. So why do we sing? Not because it's the physical action that creates worship. We sing because man, we need to remind ourselves of the truth of God, remind ourselves of that truth that needs to take up residence in our life and that truth that actually grounds us and teaches us. How many times have you guys been taught by song? So many times. So many times. That's why it's so, so, so careful that we, we think about the songs we're singing. Because it's such an intimate expression. 
it's such an intimate expression of singing the Lord's praises back to him. And God says worship in spirit and truth. He doesn't mean like go out and memorize all of the truth there ever is, all of the theology that you can ever put in your brain. He says the ones that you know about me, worship from that truth. Worship from that truth. Remember, we're the only religion that worships as a result of what God's done. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, if you guys don't mind. I'm an end result kind of guy. I like to understand where we're we going and how do I know when I get there, all right? I'm, uh, I'm the guy who brings up in staff meeting, like, okay, how is this a success? How do we know if we did good? What's going on? And in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul gives us an idea of here's what actually it looks like as we worship. I want you to start in verse 16. And he's talking about this idea of salvation. And he uses this understanding of the veil. And without getting too much Old Testament history, he's essentially saying when the veil is removed, a.k.a. when someone begins a relationship with God. Okay? That's where we're going to start there. When he says the veil is removed, someone has begun a relationship with God. Verse 16 says, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with an unveiled face, having a relationship with God, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What is that said? He says, verse 18. And we all, when we've, when we've become entered into a relationship with God, we behold the glory of God. We, we see God in his greatness. We recognize the greatness of God, and we are being transformed into the same image. Do you remember Genesis when we talk about being an image bearer, being an image bearer of Christ? We're reflecting Christ back to the nations. Well, it says that as we have entered into a relationship with God and we, we think about God and his greatness, we begin to experience the truth about God and his greatness, that it actually changes us. And we become more and more and more and more like God. So it begins to actually stir up in my mind that it's the greatness of God that we have to return to. It's thinking about God and his greatness. And the problem is that we, uh, we approach that very mentally. But in spirit and truth means emotionally, it means at the core of who you are, it means interacting with the Holy Spirit saying, all right, God, teach me the greatness of you. Holy Spirit, you said that you take the things of God and you teach them to me. Will you teach me the greatness of God? Will you show me God's greatness? Will you, as I walk to class, may I see your greatness on display. May I see your joy and your love. May I see your care for the world. May I see how you sustain the earth. God, and when I, when I pass by someone, can I see your compassion and your love for them? Can I see firsthand how you forgive? And as you interact with that, and as that takes root, you worship, and it's really easy. It's really easy. We had a, um, when you hear stories of someone who's turned um, from their life of following themselves and has turned to start following the Lord. If you actually sit and listen to their story, it's very easy to worship at the end of that because you've heard what God's done. You've seen what God's done. It's easy to say, 
God, thank you that you are the one who redeems souls, right? Like, it's very easy to worship. That's because you've sat and interacted with that. So, I want to leave us um, with uh, a really, just this one idea. How much do we think about God's greatness? Because that's at the core of worship. And the Holy Spirit teaches us God's greatness. Um, so I'm going to do something. I want to ask you guys to enter into a time of prayer real quick for about a minute, and then we're going to show a video. Um, during this time of prayer, this can be a moment for you to potentially confess that you haven't even really thought about God's greatness. Uh, that this idea of worship, maybe it's something that you've been manufacturing on your own, trying to produce. Um, you know, when the right song hits, I'm going to start singing and worshiping. But have an honest moment with God about where this interacts with you. Where are you thinking about his greatness? Where are you not thinking about his greatness? And then I'm going to show a video. And this video is just a really passionate preacher talking about the greatness of God. And at the end, I'm going to pray. And this is nothing special. This is just helping our minds get back to the point of thinking about God's greatness. Does that make sense? So let's just take a second. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. This is like have a just real talk. Where are we at with God right now? Go ahead and watch the video. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's 
available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You see, you can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! Round two. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, may your greatness be in our mind. And this is a fantastic thing. You are an incredible king. You are king of kings. And I pray that we don't just say empty, lofty phrases uh, to sound spiritual, Lord, but we would say phrases about your goodness and your greatness and things that we've experienced. Uh, Like Abby said, from We've tasted and seen. God, may your greatness become a reality for us. God, we believe that your Holy Spirit will teach us to worship. We believe that your Holy Spirit will guide our emotions to worship you. God, I I believe that the Holy Spirit within us would teach us about you. And as he does that, worship will become very easy as we recognize greatness. God, may, may our eyes see your greatness. May it not just be this lofty idea. May we see your greatness. God, I just ask for those of us in the room that have honestly not even really devoted ourselves to your greatness recently. Will you forgive us? And God, again, we say, Lord, we want want to be reminded of how great you are. We want to easily submit ourselves, proskuneo, worship you. We want to easily do that because of how great you are. So, God, we say all this in your name. Amen.